You may recall in um, the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? And when it's different circumstances for us, obviously, um, but the question is still valid. Do, do you love Jesus? We're told to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, with all our mind. But do you love Jesus? And of course, we're in church, so we're tempted to say, yes, yes, I love Jesus without even thinking. It's, it's, our, uh, it's our response that, that we love Jesus. But as you sit here, do you really love him? Because there are plenty of churches filled with people that, that would claim, yes, I love Jesus. And, and many of them, maybe, maybe years ago, they did love Jesus, but our hearts are so easily distracted by other loves. We're, we're so easily enamored by, by these, other, these other things, these other people, these, these other uh, so-called gods. You can claim to be a Christian, you can show up to church, you can be in a Bible study, you can give money to Christian ministries, but these things don't mean you love Jesus. Do you treasure Christ? Is your life hidden in Christ? Is it impossible for you to go even just a day without being with Jesus? Do you love him? We're to the point in 1 Samuel where uh, Saul, his um, his life as king, is, it's, it's, he's hit the climax and he's on the downward slope. He, he's plummeting. And David is skyrocketing um, in the story. What we see today in the chapters are, um, we see the condition of man's heart in rebellion against God. We see uh, God's ability to raise up the Savior that his people need. We're going to get this close-up view of Jonathan, who loved God's anointed. Remember, Messiah means anointed one. He loved God's Messiah, David, the Messiah of Israel at that time. He loved him so much that the author describes that, that Jonathan's soul was knit with the soul of David. And Jonathan is faced uh, with a choice when it comes to David. And, it, and it's a choice that mirrors our choice today with Jesus. Would Jonathan join himself with David, or would he set himself in opposition to David? Those are the only two options. As you see the story, there's no middle ground. And today we face the same choice with Jesus. Will you join yourself to Jesus no matter what, or will you be against him? Do you want your soul to, to be so intertwined with Christ that you could describe it as being knit with Christ, or will you live in opposition to him? I think Jonathan is a great picture for us of what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. He loved God's chosen king above everything, including from, from what looks like from a worldly perspective, what would have been better for him, what looked better. Peter wrote to uh, suffering Christians in 1 Peter 1.8, he said, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Right? Even though you haven't seen Jesus with your eyes, he says you love him. And I pray that that would be true for each of us. And where it's not true, that God would change our hearts, that he would change our affections. Our truth statement today 
is God's people love his anointed above all. And this love supersedes every relationship and every opportunity that could rival the Messiah. So God's people love his anointed one above all with a love that supersedes every relationship, every opportunity that could rival the Messiah. Let's jump into chapter 18, verse 1. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. What we see really early in 18 is that everybody loves David. Right? Jonathan, the, the son of Saul, loves David. We're going to see that Michael, one of Saul's daughters, loves David. It says the people love David. Back in chapter 16, even Saul was said to have loved David. Now, obviously, things are rapidly changing here. But we look especially at Jonathan and his actions towards David, even in just these opening verses of chapter 18. This is not, expect, not what you would expect from the one who is in line to be the king. This is a very unlikely friendship, even, even just looking at, at how they've been brought up. Right, One of them, Jonathan, was brought up in the palace from very early on, I'm sure that he was told, you're going to be the king someday. This is how a king behaves. This is how a king thinks. And then you have David growing up in the fields, learning how to take care of sheep, a poor, poor boy, the forgotten son, but God's anointed one who would replace King Saul. So these two should have been rivals, Right? They, they shouldn't get along. Jonathan, you would think, you'd think that he should hate David. David should view Jonathan as an obstacle to the throne, as a threat. He should view Jonathan as probably the last person that you would trust, and certainly not with your life. But Jonathan, he, he takes off his robe, and he gives it to David. He, he takes off his armor, his sword, his bow, his belt. Jonathan loves David. He defers to David. His robe, as he hands that to him, he's saying, this represents my future. I'm giving you my future, my rights, my position, because I see God's call on your life. I see that you are God's anointed one, that David, you're the Messiah for this people. You're the one that will be the next king for Israel. If Jonathan's saying, if I need to, to reduce who I am to get out of the way so that you can be exalted as king, I will do that. He lays down his sword, his bow, his armor. He's saying to him, I'm defenseless before you. There's nothing between us. I'm vulnerable to you. I, I am yours. I'm loyal to you. You have the power in this relationship. 
And Saul will hear about this eventually. He'll be furious that his son would, would give, give up the kingdom to David. Jonathan makes a covenant with David, and, and we, don't, we don't understand covenants that well today. Uh, we're used to contracts that can be broken, and we can just sue somebody, right? But, but covenants were a real commitment, uh, unlike what, we, what we're used to. Our marriage is, is the closest thing that, that should be like a covenant, and even marriages today, there's a lot of escape hatches in marriages But Jonathan's saying, I'm making a promise that I'm sticking to. I'm committed to you. We're not just just bros. I'm in this for the long haul. Jonathan's covenant was based out of his deep, deep love for David. And Jonathan comes off as uh, someone who is very secure in God. Right? We've, we've seen uh, many things about Jonathan. We've seen his deep trust and dependence on the Lord. He's not, he's not a needy guy. Right? He lives like he knows the Lord. My guess is you know people like that, people that, that they've just been walking with Jesus longer than you have. And, and every time you talk with that, that woman, that man, you're like, oh, I want to know the Lord like they do. I think Jonathan knows the Lord. He trusts God with his future, a future that looks nothing like what he's been raised to think it'll be, right? He spent his whole life assuming he would be the king, and that's not going to be the case, and yet he trusts God with that. He trusts God's call in David's life. He he doesn't need a position to be content with the Lord. He's secure in the Lord. He trusts the Lord, and then you have Saul. Man, Saul's needy. Saul's paranoid. Saul's, Saul's jealous. Saul is afraid, as we see in our passages today. Saul feels the kingdom just slipping right through his hands, and he's freaking out, and he's willing to do anything that he needs to, even shed innocent blood. But Jonathan, Jonathan has a confidence and a trust in God's Messiah. He trusts God's king. He trusts what God is doing. And like I said, in 18, we find out everybody Everybody minus Saul absolutely loves David. We, we heard Matt read the song that the ladies were singing. Saul has killed his thousands and David has killed his ten thousands. That did not go over well with Saul. He's jealous. He said, what are they saying? What are they saying? I've only killed thousands and he's killed tens of thousands. 18.9 says, Saul eyed David from that day on. And verse 12 says, Saul was afraid of David. Because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Verse 14, we read that that David had success in everything that he did. And again, it's because the Lord was with him. Saul could see that the Lord was clearly with David. Saul remembered when the Lord was with him. 18 verse 15. And when Saul saw that he had great success, speaking of David, He stood in fearful awe of him, but all Israel and Judah loved David. They loved David, and Saul is in fearful awe of him. And what we'll see is this jealousy, and in this fear, he's willing to do whatever it takes to get David out of the picture. He tries at first to give away his oldest daughter. He says, if if you'll just... If you'll just fight for me, fight valiantly for me. And he's thinking, ah, oh, the Philistines will get him. If I, if I convince him to fight for my daughter, the Philistines will kill him. Well, that, that deal falls apart. The author doesn't tell us why. But then we find out a short time later 
that another daughter of Saul's, Michael, loves David. And this is what he thinks in verse 21. Saul thought, let me give her to him that she might be a snare for him. Man, what a dad. That she might be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore, Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And it, it took some convincing because David's like, man, I'm poor. Who am I to be son-in-law of the king? I can't pay the bride price. And, and Saul, Saul cooks up this plan. He says, no, David, I get it. You're from a poor shepherding family. I know you can't afford the bride price, the, the, the daughter of the king. I get it. So here's, let me cut you a deal, right? Here's what I want from you for the bride price. I want you to take care of my enemies, the Philistines. Just bring me a hundred foreskins. If you're new to church, if you're new to the Bible, that's weird, okay? <laughs> that doesn't happen anywhere else. None of us here have asked for that. Saul thought, Man, I'm going to use these Philistines to get David. They're going to take him out for me. And the crazy thing is David hears this and it says he's pleased. Right? When you're young and in love, a lot of things sound good, right? Well, David, he's so pleased to do this. He doesn't stop at 100. He, he doubles down. He, he brings 200 Philistine foreskins. And, and what we see here is, man, David was honoring the king that was still in power, the one who God had set and had not removed yet. And we'll continue to see that in David, that he will continue to wait on the Lord, that he'll continue to honor Saul, even though Saul sure doesn't come across as worthy of honor. Verse 28, but when Saul, when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually from this point. He, he set himself as the enemy of David, God's Messiah. He set himself as enemy of God. Chapter 19, the, the murderous plots just intensify. There's four, um, four plots here. And each time, Saul has the advantage. On paper, Saul should have killed David with at least one of these plots. And yet it's God who prevails. Time after time, God prevails. If you set yourself against God, do you really think that you will prevail? So Saul instructs David in the, in the top of 19, Saul instructs um, David to be killed. He, he instructs Jonathan and all his servants, kill David. Well, Jonathan intervenes. He, he, he talks with his dad. He urges him. He says, dad, this is sin, right? He does not beat around the bush. He says, this is sin. You want to, you want to take innocent blood. You want to kill a man who has been good to you. And Saul listens at this point, right? It appears for a moment that he's rational, and he swears by the Lord that he will not kill David. And then Jonathan tells David, brings David into the presence of Saul, and things look good for a time. And then David goes out to war, whoops up on the Philistines. We read this in verse 9. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul. And as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, as David was playing the lyre, think of like a little harp, um, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. Does that part about the harmful spirit 
being sent from the Lord, catch your eye. It, it was in last week's passage as well, and I knew I could get to it this week. But the, the, the spirit of the Lord had been on Saul, right? And, and Saul, though, disobeyed God. He rebelled against God. God told Saul that he'd rejected the Lord, and now the Lord was rejecting him. He would be replaced as king, and we're told that the, the spirit of the Lord then was withdrawn from Saul, and this harmful spirit comes. I read some commentators that, that try to play off the harmful spirit like it's a mental illness thing, but the more I've looked into it, I think that's such a stretch. Right? This, this is a spirit used by God. We don't like thinking about God sending a harmful spirit, but this is God's judgment on Saul for, for Saul's rejection of the Lord, right? And he's, he's rejected him. He's been disobedient over and over again. He's, he has not aligned himself with God. He's, he's lined up in opposition to God. Instead of obeying God's direct commandments, he's been disobedient. And we see that continue on and on. Several times in chapter 18, the Lord makes it clear that Saul could see that the Lord was with David and so he's, he's making a clear decision to go against the Lord. So God has allowed Saul to continue in his rebellion. He's made a choice, and he's letting him continue to be the enemy of God. So this sending of the harmful spirit is God's judgment on Saul for his disobedience. But even there, there's grace. God gives him David to play the lyre, the, the little harp instrument. Right? And this is the only time that Saul feels any respite, any relief from this harmful spirit, but then he finally flips out. He chucks the spear at David, and this is the last time. David takes off. This is the last time that, that David will be in his presence at, at Saul's house. Then, then Michael, Saul's wife, or Saul's daughter, David's wife, saves David, warns him, gets him out of there, covers for him. And then, and then we heard the part uh, about the prophets that, that David was with Samuel. And Saul sends his goons to kill him. The, they come, and they can't do anything because they start prophesying. So Saul sends more people. They start prophesying. We don't know if they're singing. We don't know if they're quoting scripture. We don't know if they're, 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 speaking, they're speaking something from the Lord. The, the, the spirit is in control. Then finally, Saul's like, forget it. I'm going to go do it. He goes, and he tries to kill David. And he's overtaken by the spirit of the Lord. He's prophesying. For some reason, he strips off all his clothes. He's lying on the ground naked all night, prophesying. Super weird. Really, really humiliating. Here's Saul trying to take out his enemy, and he's powerless to harm God's anointed. God didn't need a sword. God didn't need an army. David wasn't lucky. He was protected by the Lord. And we come to chapter 20. We haven't heard about Jonathan since early in chapter 19, but... Uh, apparently Jonathan doesn't know some of the things that have been going on. And David comes to him and says, your dad still wants me dead. And he convinces Jonathan that that's the case. And he concocts this plan. He, he says, okay, I'll be absent at dinner. I'm, I'm supposed to be at the king's table with you guys, but I'm going to be absent. And if your dad asks where I am, tell him I ask permission to go to Bethlehem so that, so that I can make sacrifice with my family during the, the festival. And if Saul doesn't mind, then David's wrong, and, and, and Saul's fine towards him. But if Saul flips out, then, then clearly he wants to kill David, and then Jonathan will warn him. So Jonathan says uh, in verse 13, But should it please my father to do you harm, 
the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. How had the Lord been with Saul? Why had the Lord been with Saul? The Lord had been with Saul to make him king. And now Jonathan asks God to be with David in that same way, saying, make David king. I know that's what you're doing. See that, make that happen, Lord. What a reversal that God would use the son of the current king to be the ally for God's chosen king. Verse 14, if I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. You see, Jonathan doesn't just see a temporary thing going on. He says, Don't, do not cut off this, your steadfast love from my house forever. He says, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David, which includes his dad, right, from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved David as he loved his own soul. So it's dinner time, night one. David's seat is empty. Everybody else is there, but David's not. And, and Saul thinks to himself, oh, it, it's probably because David is ceremonially unclean. I'm sure that's it. He's unclean. It's funny that he doesn't have the thought, maybe it's because I keep trying to kill David, that David hasn't shown up to dinner tonight. It, that's not even on his radar. He tells himself, no, that this, is, this is about him being unclean. So he lets it go. Then night two, David's not there again. And, and Saul asks, Jonathan, hey, where's David? And, and, and Jonathan gives the, the spiel, the, the thing that, that David asked him to say, that, that David asked to go be at the sacrifice with his family in Bethlehem. His, his big brother commanded him to do so. Think about the risk here for Jonathan. We haven't seen Jonathan lie to his dad before. I'm not saying he's never lied to his dad, but we haven't seen that. And he's 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 lying to his dad. He's setting a trap to see if dad's going to flip out or not. That's what David has asked Jonathan to do. Well, Saul loses his mind. He freaks out. Verse 30, Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. He said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? No, Saul, he's the son of a perverse and rebellious man. The problem isn't with his mother, it's with you, Saul. Verse 31, for as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Saul is right, that as long as David is alive, Jonathan has zero chance of being the king. And we know what Jonathan was choosing was right, but can you imagine for a moment the temptation of becoming the king, becoming the, the most important person in the kingdom, right? the one in charge of everything? All he had to do was just betray David, and he would continue to be in line for the kingdom. Jonathan makes this decision look easy. Maybe it was. I doubt that it was easy. I'm sure he had to wrestle, but he trusted 
in what the Lord was doing. But can you imagine being in charge of absolutely everything? Anything that you want in the kingdom, literally, it is yours. All the wealth, the fame, the power. Man, you and I are tempted with much smaller kingdoms to turn from Jesus. And yet Jonathan's love for David is remarkable. He loved the Lord's anointed. Jonathan's allegiance is to David, the Lord's chosen one, the one that God says will be king. And his allegiance, his love, it supersedes his loyalty to his father. It supersedes his potential future. And this whole time he's been forced to choose between his father, his future, power, and in between David, God's chosen one, the one he's made a covenant with. Jonathan's appetite for God's kingdom above his own potential kingdom is incredible. In chapter 23, again, Jonathan will pledge his allegiance to David. They'll make a covenant. He'll, he'll affirm that God is making you king, David. And he says, and I will be next to you. Right? I'll be second in command with you. Some people think second is great. Other people say second is the first loser. But Jonathan, he has no problem with being in second place to David. He reminds me of John the Baptist. Right? He must increase. He must increase. I must decrease. He says, David, you're going to be the king. Jonathan's love for and his commitment to David is a picture of how we're to be committed to Christ. Our love to Jesus, our commitment to Jesus, it overrules everything that this world can offer. No matter how tempting, no matter how good it may look, Jonathan's choice of God's anointed one is a choice over his own father, over what looks like from worldly standards would be good for him. Luke 14, 26, Jesus says some hard words. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And what Jesus is saying here is we're to love Jesus above everything, right? Even, even the relationships that should be the closest in our lives, right? Our family members, mom, dad, brothers, sisters, our kids, we're supposed to love Jesus even more than them. And I don't think he's saying here, or he's not saying hate them. He's saying that, that your love for Christ is going to be so vastly different, so, so much more than your love for these people that you're supposed to love. The, the difference between the two will make it look like, like you hate them compared to how much you love me. I want people to know that I love my wife and kids. Man, I, I, want, I need people to know that Jesus is the one I live for, that, that Christ is the one that wakes me up every morning that, that he is the one my devotion is to. And I can't say by any means that it's always that way. That's what we're called to do, is to love Jesus with a love that's unlike our love for anyone else, even the people that are closest to this. Now, obviously, this doesn't mean we neglect our family. That'd be disobedience to Christ. But, but we see this love that supersedes even family bonds here in Jonathan. He aligns himself with David. Functionally, he's becoming an enemy of his own father. 
Verse 32, Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled a spear at him to strike at him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food on the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. Jonathan has made his choice. He's with David. He's aligned himself with God. So Jonathan now needs to go warn David. They had this plan that, that David would hide behind this heap of stones, and, and he would, uh, Jonathan would go out, he'd shoot some arrows, he'd have this boy that was going to go retrieve the arrows. When the boy went out, if, if Jonathan said, no, they're further, you keep going, then that was the signal to David that, yeah, you're right, my dad wants to kill you. So Jonathan goes, he shoots the arrows, the boy goes to retrieve them. He says, aren't they beyond you? Go get him. The boy finds the arrows, comes back to Jonathan. Jonathan, he tells him, take the bow, take the arrows, go back home. And then David comes out from hiding when it's safe. And he's just, he's weeping. He bows before Jonathan. And, and Jonathan, even, even in, in passing off the arrows and the bow, I think it's another reminder to David. He's saying, I'm unarmed before you. I'm not your enemy. I mean you no harm. There's nothing between us at all. And they weep together. But again, God had provided for David. He was making a way for David through the most unlikely person in the story, the son of the king that wants him dead. Verse 42, then Jonathan said to David, go in peace. Because we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. And Jonathan and David did not know if they were going to see each other again. They do. We'll, we'll see that in, in a couple chapters. But they didn't know if they were ever going to see each other again. And this, this relationship that they have is remarkable. It's, it's, it's incredible. Jonathan's love for David, David's love for Jonathan. And we could talk about their friendship and how, how crucial Christian friendship is. And that's true, right? We need brothers. We need sisters in Christ that we walk through life with people that know us, people that will help us follow after Christ. But I don't want us to miss what Jonathan shows us. He shows us what a disciple to the king looks like, to King Jesus. Jonathan defers to the coming king. Jonathan's heart was committed to the king, no matter the cost. His allegiance to the king was unwavering. He, he laid everything down before the king. Jonathan was not as concerned with present circumstances as much as looking forward to and trusting in God's coming king and what God was doing. Jonathan had an absolute love for the coming king and his coming kingdom. More than he loved just choosing what was easy and comfortable and what could provide him instant gratification. He loved David more than he loved making choices that kept him safe. He was choosing to follow God's king. Jesus' disciples were to choose Jesus above ourselves. We're to choose Jesus above comfortable circumstances, above instant gratification. Jonathan shows us 
that you do what a king wants. Right? Why? Because he loves David. Disciples of Jesus do what the king asks. We demonstrate our love by doing what he asks us to do. John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. Right? It, it's an overflow. Right? Why do you keep the commands? He says, if you love me. It's, it's based, it's rooted in this deep, deep love for Jesus. We're not robots just doing what the king commands. We know how much we're loved by Christ. We love him so much that we're ready to do whatever he asks, he asks of us. Of course I want to do what Jesus asks. He's my everything. He's given me life. I love Jesus. Jesus' disciples love him so much that they long for Jesus to be exalted, rightly exalted as the king in this world. His disciples make choices that will advance the kingdom of Christ. They make sacrifices that truly cost. Jesus' disciples speak the truth about Jesus even to his enemies, even when they'll face persecution. Jonathan's decision to love David made life really hard, really fast. Being loyal to David did not equal an easy life, and Jesus warned that it would cost his followers. You know this, John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before, the, before it hated you. David could have said the same thing to Jonathan. If Saul hates you, remember that he hated me first. If Saul throws a spear at you, remember that he threw a spear at me first. And we love Christ. Do you remember why you love Christ? First John 4.10 nails it for me. John wrote, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, right? To be the, the atoning sacrifice that, that Jesus steps in our place. He substitutes for us so that the wrath of God is satisfied so that we could be forgiven of sins. And Paul, or in Romans, Paul says that while, you're at, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We love God because he's loved us. What other response would there be than to love God? This is why you love him, harvest. So do we approach Jesus like Jonathan approached David? Do we, do we willingly lay down our future before him? Do we trust him with, with everything that he is going to do? Do we lay down our armor, what, what, what we feel secure in? Are we willing to make Jesus our security? Do we lay down our weapons, acknowledging that he is the one with power, that he is our protector and authority in our lives? Thank God that our king is coming, a king that loves us. Let's pray. Jesus, there aren't words that, that can, can rightly confess our love for you. We can't explain everything that we owe you by, besides saying we, we owe you our whole lives, our very being. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for what truly was an, an incredible relationship between Jonathan and David. But Lord, I thank you that David is pointing us to you, the Messiah, that, that Jonathan is helping us see what it looks like to follow the coming king to be devoted to him. Jesus, I pray that we would love you.
Lord, and I pray in the, the areas in our life that, that we've let other things creep in, Lord, that we would confess those sins to you and we would lay those too at your feet, that, that our allegiance really would be to you, that we would love you more than anyone or anything else, Jesus. It's in your name we pray, amen.